0: Hey, what's up, everyone? Hope uh, everyone's doing well out there. Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I wasn't sure if I was going to have the time to get another podcast in before the Memorial Day weekend. I guess it's already upon us, isn't it? So I figured I would put one out today. Um, I'm actually fighting a cold a little bit, so my apologies if I cough a little bit during the podcast. Um, Hopefully, that'll get better. Uh, Thankfully, I'm sleeping, which is good. That's the best way. And taking tons of vitamin... C and zinc and all the rest of the stuff you're supposed to take Uh, anyway uh, it's a beautiful day out there and uh, the roads are just jammed with people going to the mountains and to the beaches for memorial day maybe some of you are out there traveling right now listening to this podcast and if you are i hope you have a wonderful weekend and i hope you have a church picked out if you're traveling for the lord's day that uh, has like-minded saints that you can worship with Uh, There's a couple of things I want to talk about. The main thing, of course, is uh, in in the title. I want to talk about this shift that's taken place over the last 60, 70 years on how conservatives or I, I should say people on the right politically in the United States think of Nazis and critique Nazis and where they see Nazism being manifested now. This is something that I, I'm sure other people have thought about this. Did I say Memorial Day? Someone's correcting me. Labor Day. If I said Memorial Day, my apologies. Labor Day. Yes. Uh, which is, uh, we won't go into the origins of Labor Day today. That would, um, enjoy it. I still think you should enjoy it. Even if the the origins of it maybe aren't, uh, I, it's, it's a fake holiday to me, but anyway, <laughs> I let it out. I let it out. Okay. Um, The reason I think it's important, uh, the the subject at hand, is because I have noticed a lot of people on the right critiquing conservatives, -conservatives, paleo-conservatives, traditional Christians, Christian nationalists, cultural Christians, people supposedly on the right, mind you, and using the same kind of smears the left uses. And this got me to thinking, and I thought, I'm sure other people have delved into this and studied this. I just don't know where. I don't know who did it and where they did it. Maybe there's an article somewhere, but I figured since I couldn't find one, I would write my own. And so uh, I'm hoping to get this published at, I don't know, somewhere that would be willing to publish it, somewhere like American Reformer or Chronicles Magazine. If not, I'll just self-publish it. But uh, I wanted to discuss the contents in that article, and I, I took a, about a day earlier this week to um, to, to write that. And uh, and so that's the the main main thing we're going to talk about today. Of course, though, I also have other things I want to talk to you about. A Richard Dawkins clip I just saw like an hour ago that I, I said I got to share this with the podcast audience. This is really your brain on classical liberalism. It really is. It's it's really crazy what Richard Dawkins proposes, and. Um, It's consistent, though, with, I think, the the overriding philosophy that even people on the right in the last 20 years, 30 years have just taken for granted and it doesn't work anymore. And so I'm going to show that to you. And uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about God's law. I know I put some Twitter posts out there that people are uh, commenting on. And uh, some people I think are perhaps confused or misunderstanding, or maybe I'm just not being clear. So I'm going to take a few minutes to just probably cause myself more grief and controversy, but, uh, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the application of God's law to modern times, modern situations. So uh, I don't want to go into detail on that. I actually have a, an episode brewing in my mind on that entire subject, where we'll talk about how theologians have... Looked at that subject, but I just want to give you my two cents on it, my my opinion, where I'm at. uh, So there's no misunderstanding. So hopefully that sounds good to everyone. Before we get into all that, though, uh, I have a little video to share with you. This is an invite from Chef Lance Nidahara, and he's a friend of mine. He's going to be speaking at the Men's Conference in the Adirondack Mountains, September 21st through 24th. If you can make it, OvercomingEvilConference.com. OvercomingEvilConference.com. Here's a little clip of him.
1: Lance need a here. Lance in the appetizer round. He showed an amazing amount of creativity. My philosophy on evangelism became such that I know now that I have to speak up. I have to go out and I have to warn those of the wrath that is to come.
0: And I am excited and privileged and honored to be a part of the annual men's conference that we'll be doing up at Camp of the Woods in the Adirondacks. Uh, I will be there and I am privileged to be speaking about battling evil in today's present dark culinary industry, as well as equipping young people to be able to do the same through the Bible, through scripture, through Christ.
1: Uh, And it's going to be a really great time in fellowship and learning. Uh, And I'm looking forward to meeting you all. Looking forward to this entire thing.
0: Well, there you have it. Uh, So follow Lance's lead. <laughs> I hope you can be there. I hope you can come. If there's any questions, info at truthscript.com is probably the best place to ask those questions. And I will be sure to get back to you and answer them. Uh, it is coming upon us pretty quick though, but there are still openings. So, uh, looking forward to seeing all the men who are going to come out to that. Um, let's, uh, there's, there's some comments coming in. So let me just acknowledge those. Uh, yeah. Quiana, uh, Shaw is on most holidays are fake. Yeah it seems like in the last uh, yeah, I don't know, a hundred years, I mean, <laughs> a lot of the holidays ha- have not been organic. They haven't arisen from natural tendencies, traditions in regions, that kind of thing. it's It's more of like a uh, uh, an abstract kind of like this is what we in fact, I, I should say that even the holidays that did arise from certain occasions that were celebrated uh, in local areas and so forth have been turned into abstract. <laughs> holidays. So, so everything's kind of becoming this, but it, it becomes a celebration of like, you know, blanket freedom or, you know, uh, I, what is labor? Do people even know what Labor Day is, right? Um, it's, uh, I mean, union should be all over that, I suppose, but we don't even associate it with that. It's just like taking a break. It's like the weekend of the year kind of thing. Uh, the last hoorah for summer. Um, so some of, some of these holidays, you're right. They, they're, they're, they become so meaningless. It, it, it even gets past the level of abstraction into just the, it really means almost nothing. But we get a break, and uh, I think Juneteenth is actually kind of on the the, the the social justice warriors are using it to try to forward their agenda. But I, I actually think it's being fast tracked, not not because it's their intention, but just because it's the way that people who didn't cultivate that habit, it's a foreign thing to them. That's how they're going to treat it. They're just oh, I get another day off. There's no traditions associated with this, but I'm glad to have a day off. So anyway, it's uh, it does devalue the the celebration of holidays, which are supposed to, as the name implies, holy days. Contra talk with Pastor Richard uh, is on. Happy Friday, Pastor Richard. Uh, <laughs> he says that uh, his eleven year old daughter keeps thinking Labor Day has something to do with having babies. Actually, that might be a better a, a better holiday. Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, A.D. Robles is, is with us. Hey, A.D., hope you're doing well. Um, let's get into some of this. So I, I want to share with you guys this video first because this blew me away. Check this out. This is Richard Dawkins. Now, for those who don't know, Richard Dawkins wrote The God Delusion. He's a big neo-atheist thinker, maybe the biggest one. I mean, I think he probably sold more than Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris. And and he is, uh, I would say from like 15 years ago, I, I was very used to like, talking to his proteges at college campuses and trying to reason with them and witness to them. I remember in, I was in a deer stand, maybe it was about that long ago with his book on my, I had an iPod at the time. So it was that long ago and I had his book and I was, uh, I, I had a PDF somehow that I was able to read and I was reading it and trying to figure out what he believed because so many people followed Richard Dawkins. Well, Richard Dawkins has kind of fallen from grace. At least with the left, because the left, um, they embraced atheism. In fact, I I forget which year it was within the last, though, 10 years. I want to say I I think it was 2016 or 2012. I can't remember which one. But the Democrat convention, I remember, had uh, basically booed God. There was a or at least the inclusion of language honoring God in their party platform. And so this this was, and and it still, to some extent, is the Democratic Party. They're um, they're atheistic, but they're pagan more than they are even atheistic. And Richard Dawkins, he, he would have been a, a champion, a hero to, to a lot of those people. And now a lot of them have turned on him because he's not woke enough. And and the thing that strikes me about all this is, um, you know, conservatives are are very hungry to have some people on our side with a platform and with some some good speaking skills and people who are liked and richard dawkins has been liked by at least a sizable group of people for a long time and there is i I have seen it even with richard dawkins there is sort of this uh desire even even with the past experience of him going after religion really hard and going after christianity in particular there is this desire to kind of include him on our side right um, others who have not been as publicly, at least popular, for doing the same kinds of things uh, are included now on the conservative side. James Lindsay is a perfect example, I would say, of this. Uh, but you could also look at Bill Maher, because another atheist who uh, has said many things against religion and Christianity, and yet now he's included. So so, so I'm going to play for you a clip of Richard Dawkins. And, and I think knowing that context is helpful to know he, he's on a left-leaning show, but look where the the uh, host is trying to push him on the transgender issue and look the, uh, at the defense, the flimsy defense that Richard Ro- uh, Dawkins gives for why he well, he doesn't even really give a reason, but for why he objects to transgender surgeries for children, but not for adults. Here's Richard Dawkins out, for example, things like arresting doctors who provide certain um, gender affirming care, as it's called. Maybe you have an issue with the term or, or, or not. But
1: what about the arresting of doctors, for example? Does that not start to bite a little <laughs> bit to oh, which, which go ahead. doctors have, have doctors been arrested for that?
0: No, these are bills that have been proposed in the United States. It has not happened, to my knowledge, fortunately, uh,
1: children or, or adults. We've seen both in different states. Well, I would have, um, I would have strong objection to doctors, um, uh, injecting minors, children or performing surgery on, on them to change their sex.
0: And as far as adults, you have no issue.
1: Well, um, I think if, if it's, if, if they've thought about it properly, like, um, some like um, Jan Morris, for example, who, who I, I read years ago, one of the first of the uh, trans people that I read and greatly respected her, uh, her, the, her struggle that she went through in order to um, change sex from male to female. She really, really put herself through it and clearly sincere, clearly suffered from, from gender dysphoria, no doubt about that. And, and, and I take my hat off to her and to the doctors who helped her. But I fear that what we're seeing now is a fashion, a craze, um, a, 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 a mimetic epidemic, um, which, is, which, is, uh, which is spreading like an epidemic of, of measles or something like that.
0: I'm trying to make sense of that. I mean, it doesn't really make sense. He's struggling to he's pausing. He's having to think about it. And there's nothing wrong with that if you haven't thought about something. But this has been a hot button issue for a few years now. Uh, at least since 2020 and uh, especially in Britain. And he's clueless on how to navigate this. It's it's really sad to me in a way because uh, he has Darwin in the background. Um, as someone just pointed out, he's got a bust of Darwin. And he claims to be this rational thinker. He believes in reason. That's one of the things if you read Dawkins, you're going to see over and over and over is the supremacy of reason over the superstitions of religion and the bigotries of tradition And, and reason is going to be the thing that really advances us. And we should uh, throw away all those antiquated notions of uh, tradition, religion, and ties to the past and embrace, uh, embrace our evolution, but also, uh, embrace the, the, what makes sense, uh, to human beings. And so he's, he's a bit of, he's a rationalist. I guess there's no other way to say it. And, um, and he's also a materialist and uh, which doesn't really jive because, you know, ra- to him, it would be in your brain, things sparking off things, uh, chemical reactions that are actually causing this reason in the first place. So it, there isn't uh, the the intangibles don't have a way to even exist in the materialist world that Richard Dawkins believes in. but But the whole idea is that Things can be like a mathematical equation. We can approach almost every problem that way. Things can be approached in this rational way. So so where's the rational way? Where's the evolutionary biological way to approach the issue of transgenderism, right? You would think that if you were at least trying to be consistent, you would look at that as an inhibiting mutation, right? Like people who claim to have this, they're not procreating. They're, I mean, if they are, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but it, but if they are procreating, it, it certainly is not to the degree that heterosexual couples are. Uh, they have higher suicide rates. There's, um, it's very costly on society to transition them. And there's a lot of drugs that they have to take for the rest of their lives m- most of the time when this happens. I mean, there's so many dr- drawbacks to it. You would think someone who's a rationalist, who's a materialist like Richard Dawkins would object to it on those grounds. He doesn't though. Uh and and I'm not even saying that would be a completely rational objection. I don't think his understanding of reality, his philosophy of life makes sense. So there there's going to be problems with it. But but he chooses not to go that direction, which that would be, I, I would think the low-hanging fruit for him. Um, it would also give him a lot of blowback. It would it would be it, he'd have to act actively be against transgenderism in order to take that stance. And and you know Charles Darwin would have probably I mean he didn't face these same things but you know he would have done something like that right we're in a new era though and Richard Dawkins uh, decides to make this separation and I've seen others make this separation and I think this is going to be in conservative elite circles there's there's going to be a split on this there are those who want children to be exempted from this they don't don't hurt the children and this the, the whole idea of don't hurt the children, which is a appropriate idea. We, we should understand that children are, uh, th- there's less wisdom there. They're less able to make uh, the decisions that they are being trained for, that they will be able to make at a later point in their life. There is development, right? Um, even Jesus, it says, grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and man. So, so children uh, are to be protected if you make one, if you cause one of them to stumble better that a millstone were hung around your neck. So he's detecting something that is true. Uh, right. And, and so there is this category of, of protecting kids, but at the same time, he objects to transgender surgeries, uh, he, because I guess they, they harm children somehow. They're innately, it, it's going to do damage. It's, uh, he he can't condemn the doctors outright, even though that's what he's being asked to do. But he can at least kind of give this whimper of a, a lame response to say we should protect the kids from that. OK, protect them from that. Why, though? Right. And, and, and this is the question. Um, I could I could look at something like firearms and I could say, well, you know, a child who's three year old shouldn't be left in a room full of loaded firearms. Why is that? They don't know how they work. They haven't been taught responsibility. They're not, uh, it's not a tool that they can use effectively. Uh, They have, there's great potential for damage there, but are firearms wrong? No, firearms aren't wrong. In fact, firearms are useful tools. And I could say the same thing about a a vehicle or heavy machinery or anything that would be dangerous in the hands of uh, someone who's untrained or a child, but is, uh, is right and good in the hands of an adult. Um, When it comes to uh, sexuality, I I can say that um, children do not have the capacity for that yet. God has not wired them in such a way as to take part in that. And so uh, because I believe, as the Bible teaches, uh, that sex is uh, for marriage itself, and someone who is not eligible for marriage and someone who is not married should not be participating in that. Uh, should they have knowledge about it? And I don't want to go on a whole long thing here, but, but I'm getting to the point. The point is that they, they don't, there are certain phases of development in which we, uh, as, as parents, as members of society, we give new responsibilities like the right to vote. Some of these are based on tradition. Uh, but there's this understanding that there is a development that, that proceeds forward. Now, Is that, though, is the question in the same category as something like transgenderism? Uh, So it's it's wrong to it's dangerous, I guess, to uh, have a transition for children. It's dangerous for doctors to perform those surgeries on children. But yet for adults, it's perfectly fine. It's even brave. It's even uh, something to admire. Well, that's what Richard Dawkins does at the end of the clip. He turns it into something to admire if you've thought through it. And you really feel that you're a woman, even though you're were born a man, and that's who you really are. Then you should be true to what, <laughs> to that experience you say you have, that experience living in society and feeling like a woman. To quote Shania Twain, "If if you can sing that song as a man and you really mean it, uh, that consent, that belief, uh, makes it so. And 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 there should be a." recognition of that, and part of obtaining the social recognition is perhaps performing a surgery. Now, if that's a good thing in and of itself, what? why is it that it's bad for children, but it's good for adults? Like, at what point does it become, because with these other issues like, like guns, for example, or other, you know, safety issues, or even heterosexuality, I think it's, it's fair to say that we are looking at something that's good in a in the right context, and, and and there's someone who is just unable to navigate that context because they're they haven't developed to the point of being able to have the wisdom and and, and knowledge etc. But in this case with transgenderism, it's it, Dawkins has to has to cram this into this kind of format where it's the same thing as that. It, it's like guns. So it's like something that's good and right and heroic and worthy of admiration. And of course, no doctor should be punished for performing these. And we should, I, I mean, why not taxpayer money going towards it if it's so good? We we should uh, champion this. Um, but yet it's just not for kids, not for kids because they don't know how to handle it yet or something. That's that's what's happening. And I think that's what the conservative movement's doing. And. This is so different than even, I would say, and when I say conservative movement, I'm saying it's it's now maybe on the fringes, but I I think it will become mainstream because you already see this bifurcation with homosexuality and transgenderism where quote unquote conservatives think it's okay for homosexual couples to uh, use surrogacy to become parents. They think that it's okay for homosexuals to get married. The government shouldn't be involved in that. Uh it's but they they don't like the transgender thing in sports, right? There's already the separation. And and I think the next logical step is well, transgenderism's fine, but not the kids, right? The kids are the last the the last spark of I guess moral decency, the last uh thing to go in the we we value our children in the United States, but in the Western world in particular, has been uh uniquely, I would say, values children and wants to preserve their innocence. That's the last thing to go. And we have no real reason. It's it's this flimsy consent thing that's holding the whole tidewater back. We have no reason to expect that that's going to hold because it's built on nothing less than our choice. And then this idea that making choices are good, if you make a choice, you just have to be able to handle that choice. You just have to be able to make that choice and have it be your own choice and not with the influence of someone else, as, as children are apt to uh, be influenced. And so, uh, so, so, is it twelve years old? Is it eighteen? Is it is it three? I mean, what's what's the choice here? I mean, the same thing could be said about pedophilia. When when does the consent enter the picture? What's missing though is the idea of virtue and telos that there's actually purpose baked into creation. There's expectations and responsibilities and obligations we have, and so th- the growth period is to be able to. Uh, fill those obligations, fulfill them to uh, benefit your fellow man, to live in the order that God has established, right? Um, I'm not talking about the gospel. I'm not talking about any of that yet. I'm just saying the way that God set up from creation, that is, there's a purpose in that. And so, that and, and that's how traditionally we've, I mean, everyone really up until pretty recently in the Western world would have viewed uh, the difference between being a child and being an adult. And now that's, that's all changing. It's not about developing into something that's uh, rooted in God's creation. It's just about like passing an exam so that you can go and fulfill whatever desires you have. That's all it is. And and so when you're 18, you can vote and when you're 21, you can drink and uh, you know, there's all these different ages that you can do different things at and it's it we're we're saying now that sexuality is 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 just like this in the sense that it it also uh is is good in and of itself no matter what choice you make sexually you just have to prove at a certain age that you're able to handle that why 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 not why one age and not another what what is the damage if you, uh, if, if you have this desire, let's say at 12 or 13, why is that not brave? How come this person who's 25 is brave when they make that transition, but not the person who's 13 and we need to protect them. What are we protecting them from exactly? Right. Um, I, I, the only thing that's holding this back is, well, they're just not capable. I don't know. There's some 13 year olds who seem pretty capable, right? Once, once that argument falls and, you have a smart 13 year old or something, you just open the floodgates for kids. There's no, there's nothing uh, holding it back. So that's just my two cents on it. I just think it's silly. And it's just not something that we've heard really before, but we're going to hear it a lot, I think, in the coming years. And it's the big mistake, I think that conservative, uh, politically conservatives, uh, and I, I suppose Christians to some extent too, it's a mistake that they've made in platforming Atheists and uh, and people who are just so they're 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 so antithetical to a Christian understanding of reality. Not that you can't be cobelligerent on things, but th- there's this is where it leads. Uh, this is your brain on classical liberalism. Richard Dawkins isn't woke. Remember, Richard, this is not a guy who's supposedly woke. He's anti woke, and the woke people don't like him. And yet, he's saying that it's it's a brave, it's it's a really a noble thing for someone who's an adult at least. To pursue changing their gender, I don't know. Seems pretty woke to me, right? Well, he's he's he he his his whole idea is based on the consent and looking at uh, individual humans as uh, autonomous and able to make these decisions. So I, I think it, it's more in a classical liberal framework. And uh, so I, I wanted to share that with you. I thought that was pretty crazy. Let's get into the main topic. I think that's, yeah. Oh, no, I had one more thing. But you know what? Let's save that because um, I've already been going about 26 minutes. So let's get into the main topic. Uh, Lots of comments coming in. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Richard Dawkins does go wobbly at times. As we see in the video, we need Christians to stand on the word without wavering. That's very true. You know, who else is Joe Biden? I just saw Joe Biden the other day is going pretty wobbly as well. Uh, it, it no, it, Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell is actually who I was thinking of. I get now, see, I'm getting him confused now because they, they're acting the same exact way. It's crazy. Um, all right, let's get into the Nazi stuff. All right. One, one, one more comment. John, John Philip Brooks says, okay, so why do conservatives criticize male to female transgender people so much more severely than female to male transgender people? I've, I i do not know. I haven't noticed that. Male, do they do that? Um, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, I, it's it seems more prevalent to me. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but it does seem more prevalent to me. I don't know. Maybe someone else in the chat can answer that question. Okay, let's uh, talk about this. Um, I have this on a, a Word per- Perfect document. That's the... Uh, I'm kind of weird. I don't really use Word. I, I've I've been trained on this program called Word Perfect, and so I keep using it. But it's about uh, double spaced. It's it's uh, like nine and a half pages. So I'm gonna read some of it to you and just talk about this because I think it's fascinating and it's important for us to understand. So I start off. I say it goes without saying that the modern left use their political opponents as proto Nazis. This, of course, puts them in the enviable position of wearing the white hat, regardless of the strength of their arguments. The sheer volume of media attacks on Donald Trump for somehow gleaning from Adolf Hitler is overwhelming. Just recently, Vox carried the subtitle, Trump isn't Hitler, but when it comes to the courts, he successfully is borrowing from the Nazis' playbook. The association this time is that in the same way Hitler used his arrest for the Munich Beer Hall pooch to promote himself, so Trump is also using his arrest for election interference to promote his candidacy. Okay. So, so in other words, there's this very loose tie that you could try to make and say, well, Hitler was uh, elected for trying to overthrow the, or, or arrested for trying to overthrow the government. And Trump's also being arrested. And therefore, they must be the same person. Of course, modern leftists fail to see the parallels between their leaders and Nazis on things like race obsession, health care, and environmental policies. Only conservatives are guilty of adopting Nazi beliefs. I mean, it's just so obvious. I mean, you're not seeing articles from the left paralleling Hitler with their own heroes. He's not like Gramsci. He's not like uh, Nelson Mandela. He's not like Martin Luther King Jr. All these guys were in jail cells writing stuff uh, because and that's how you know about them, because that's where they wrote their stuff is in jail cells. And from these jail cells, they were able to acquire an audience. And it was because they were threats uh, in very in different ways, but threats to uh, the government. Ironically, modern conservatives foolishly seem determined to appropriate this lazy smear for themselves as a defense mechanism and as a way to convince their voter base that political progressives are the true Nazis, and thus win the moral high ground. Before adopting this tactic, it is wise to consider when it came, where it came from, who benefits from it, and how conservatives traditionally critique Nazism. So. This is, I think, foolhardy from the beginning, and I, I'm sure that I've fallen into this before. Probably not recently, but I was influenced to some extent from some neoconservatives. I mean, I read Jonah Goldberg's book, Liberal Fascism, and thought it was like one of the best things when I wrote when I read it. And there are some interesting things in it, but it's overall, I I, I think, it's probably um, I wouldn't recommend it at this point. I'll put it that way. And I, I really thought that conservatives would politically win if we were able to show that the left were the true nazis because we all know the nazis are bad right we all grew up with the world war ii movies and video games and we know the nazis are bad in fact i was talking to a friend of mine the other day and we were talking about first person shooter video games and we were talking about how like you don't have like war of 1812 or french uh, revolution or napoleonic wars or uh, you don't really have a lot of World War I stuff, even, certainly not Civil War, Revolutionary War, first-person shooters. Why is that? And there's like tons of World War II. Like we just keep killing Nazis in in video games. And and it's, so it's it's just part of what we're used to. And and so if if that's the big villain, if that's the the worst imaginable thing is to be a nazi then whoever gets to paint the other side as the true nazis will gain a political advantage and and so the left um has cultivated this and uh, of course you know they have their reasons for being anti-nazi because the nazis were national socialists and they were international socialists so they were sworn enemies uh in germany and they have continued to be sworn enemies in fact you can see even remnants of this playing out in the Russia-Ukraine struggle because uh, Ukraine there, there's regiments that uh, have Nazi-esque neo-Nazi sympathies. They use Nazi symbols, etc. Fighting uh, Russian units who, while they're not Soviets now, there's still a history there, and so um, so so this hasn't really gone away. But that's not the only critique of Nazism. In fact, it's not even the strongest critique of Nazism. And it's kind of insane, I think, for conservatives to just buy into that moral framework that the Nazis are, of course, the worst thing that could ever be there. There's all kinds. Of, in fact, the current threats are, uh, are, are totalitarianism from globalists who, you know, maybe you could say they resemble the Nazis in some ways, but they, they really more resemble uh, kind of like a, a really more classical liberal, to be honest, that's formed a totalitarianism. There, there's uh, threats, of course, from the, the actual communist world as well. Um, there's threats simply from moral degeneracy and, you know, the left is like, someone told me this years ago, and I thought it, it stuck with me. So why, why do you keep calling the left Nazis? They're basically a suicide cult. They're like Jim Jones. I mean, compare them to that. I mean, that's, that's really what they are. And I'm like, yeah, that's actually, I mean, that's much worse in a way. Uh, it, it I mean, it, it's not to say Nazis are good. It's just to say that it, they're, they're not the big threat right this second. And, um, it's easy to take an already defeated threat from years ago to recycle it and to just keep keep trying to smear today's opponents as part of that same threat to categorize them that way. Uh, because you don't have to think really. You don't have to do any philosophical work. You don't have to understand the roots of a, a particular ideology. You can just say it's that same old ideology we've always hated. So when the left starts doing crazy stuff, I would just say, let's suppress that urge to call them Nazis or even, you know, racists or even, you know, Klansmen or whatever. The Democrat Party is the real racist that it doesn't phase them at all. And it just all it does is teach our side that that's the worst thing imaginable. So we buy into the left's framework when we do that. Very foolish thing to do, but we've been doing it, unfortunately, for uh, I'd say it got mainstream probably within the last 15 years, but it's been going on. In conservative intellectual circles for longer. So during, um, well, let's, let's start actually here. Um, the first thing that I talk about is the Frankfurt School psychologist, Theodore Adorno. And, and in 1950, he wrote a book called The Authoritarian Personality. This is only three years after the Paris peace treaties were signed. And he suggested things like parental authority, traditional gender roles, family pride, preserving heterosexuality, defending American culture, and Christian beliefs signaled implicit pre-fascist tendencies. So you're not quite a fascist, but you're you're getting there if you hold to these things. These these things, and this isn't. There was more than just that, but but these were things that he thought uh, were threats. And you can see the modern left using all of these. Of course, university programs use these in their psychology departments. Now, two years after this point, after this book was published, you can see this already playing out in the 1952. Democrat campaign for the White House. And President Harry Truman, um, he wasn't running. In fact, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who was running at that time. I should probably look it up. No one remembers the losers of these things if they don't have a future in politics. Uh, It was a guy by the name of um, Adley Stevenson. So Adley Stevenson, and he, he did not We could probably call this a landslide. I mean, Eisenhower really did beat him. He only got 89 in the electoral vote, 89 electoral votes, and then President Eisenhower got 442. So, but I mean, look, he had 44.3% of the popular vote and Eisenhower had 55.2%. So, I mean, there was a split, like uh, the big part of the country liked uh, Stevenson. But President Harry Truman, of course, was the outgoing president during this time. And President Harry Truman campaigned for Stevenson and campaigned against Eisenhower and the Republicans. Now, how did he do that? Let me give you an example of what he did. He blamed Republicans for things like opposing civil rights. Yes, even in 1952, that was already a discussion. Um, Restricting immigration was another thing that they they were bigoted on this. Uh, that the Republicans promoted the belief that Soviet subversives had infiltrated the State Department. You remember McCarthy. And he called that the big lie. <laughs> that, that's that been recycled, the big lie. And he said that it was deadly to the American tradition of liberty and the kind of weapon used by the Nazis, the fascists, and the communists. Okay, So the communists are also kind of bad guys, but the Nazis are the chief bad guys. He warned the National Jewish Welfare Board that Americans should be vigilant to oppose the philosophy of racial superiority developed by the Nazis from re-emerging in the United States under the guise of anti-communism. He even linked Republicans' opposition to government-subsidized jobs programs to an unwillingness to defend ourselves against the aggression of the Nazis and the fascists and do business with Hitler instead. And, And... Ironically, all of this was aimed at Dwight Eisenhower, who defeated actual Nazis, but was now guilty of accepting, quote, the very practices that identified the so-called master race, unquote. So as early as 1952, five years after the Paris Peace uh, Treaty, uh, you already have this going on. You already have Democrats using this playbook to smear their Republican rivals. Okay, so don't think that this was something that was concocted for Donald Trump or George W. Bush or Ronald Reagan. No, it's been going on much longer than that. Now, the critique, of course, of this is you have to understand what it was to understand why the modern critique people on the right are using is also bogus. The critique used was that basically Eisenhower, who had defeated the Nazis, was too into preserving his own people. I mean he just he really wanted to keep that the immigration down and he really just uh I mean he he was racially insensitive on civil rights issues. I mean this is before the civil rights act. But he was uh he, he was to be um uh, I guess suspected because of that. He was supposed to be suspected because he was in the same party as someone who was claiming there were communists all over the place and we all know that if you oppose communism too hard that must mean you're a nazi because they oppose communism right? It was these kinds of things that were tangentially related that someone like Truman was able to connect to Eisenhower and the Republican party. And he wasn't successful. Eisenhower won, which, you know, you would think Republicans tried that and they did, it didn't work. They would go back to the drawing board and they would trash their former plans. But Democrats don't do that because they're ideologues. Republicans are becoming that way more, but Democrats uh, just hammered, you know, the next year, the next time they were around, you know, let's use the same smears. Let's So so they've been doing this for a long time. Today's American left increasingly destroys more and more cultural artifacts, organizations, and people through this strategy too. Everything from MAGA Republicans to Moms for Liberty are smeared as Nazis or part of a growing list of supposedly repackaged Nazi beliefs like white supremacy, kinism, Christian nationalism, and Confederate sympathizing. Such has always been the post-World War II left's undeveloped understanding. So they're not actually critiquing Nazism. They're just calling things Nazi they don't like. That's a difference, right? Uh, they seem to think that anything with a hint of concern for the preservation of European heritage, tradition, or culture will produce another Hitler and Holocaust. Being anti Nazi now requires one to purge Western societies of their very identities. And that's 100% true. The left has, for years, been making, since you can see it since Truman, the claim that conservatives are trying to stick up for white people for Americans um for uh now it's for Christians for 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 the people that really uh you could say settled pioneered colonized founded the place we call United States of America you know, those people and their their descendants are to be shamed are to be marginalized are to be deplatformed and anything short of that is nazism that's basically where we've ended up and So it's it's this commitment to people in place that is the problem with Nazism. It's the blood and soil thing. That's the problem. That's the critique. That's the, the issue. That's why Nazism was wrong to the left. American political conservatives have long pointed out the left's hypocrisy though on this point. James Burnham expressed concern in 1961 that the United Nations exclusively focused on racialism from Western whites such as Nazis and Klansmen while ignoring the anti-white outrages of the black Congolese, the anti-Semitic activities of North African Arabs, the Mao Mau terror and other examples. And a lot of the examples I'm going to give you are coming from National Review magazine in the 1950s, back when they still had some actual conservatives writing for them before Jonah Goldberg and, you know, David French and all those guys. And National Review uh, carry guys like James Burnham. James Burnham, I talk about managerial elite theory. James Burnham's the guy who really started that and came up with that. and And so they carried articles from people like that and and they were expressing their concerns even back then with this double standard. Currently, the United States Department of Justice is suing SpaceX for employing American citizens instead of asylum seekers and refugees. It is a modern sin to prefer one's own people if they are white, and this is somehow proven by the fact that Hitler preferred white people and committed genocide. Of course, Anglo-American conservatives have always opposed Nazism, but on different grounds. Early post-war conservatives believed Hitler's problem was not that he loved his country or his people too much, but rather that he twisted natural affinities for blood and soil into loyalty to totalitarian ideology. In other words, the slogan blood and soil was just a slogan. Didn't really mean that the at least the upper echelon that they really cared about blood and soil. They cared about an ideology they had. Uh, they were willing to violate sovereign borders. They were willing to jail their own people uh, for political crimes that were um, that were not political crimes before the Nazis had arisen. Just just blaspheming the state. Uh, you know they they were willing to kill uh, even parts of their own populations within their borders in order to. Uh, purify their race, quote unquote. Um, they were, they, they, they demanded allegiance to this abstraction and Hitler became basically an abstracted person in the minds of many. They saw little difference between, not the conservatives, saw little difference between Nazism and Bolshevism uh, on this point, so communism. Neither fascism nor communism were capable of achieving their ideal world and thus produced rulers committed to fantasies that destroyed the lives of the people they claimed to love. Gerhard Niemeyer asked, does it make sense when people in the name of the good life initiate wholesale purges, liquidate entire classes of a population, insist on prescribing the detailed structure of a faraway society, maintain an army of spies and spy against those spies? The obvious answer is no. And and this was written, uh, that particular quote, I believe, is from 1957. Think about where we are today. Does that does not some of that describe the United States? Today, Uh, an army of spies that spy against those spies. I I mean, insist on prescribing the detailed structure of a faraway society. Uh, We're we're kind of, there's some parallels you could draw if you wanted. Hitler did not love his own people as much as he did a certain abstract construction of society's people's lives were made to fit into. So the, the main thing was this vision, and everything got sacrificed to this vision. National socialists worked to achieve what Eric von, and now I can't say this guy's name, but uh, Kunelt Lieden called an irrational mixture of biology and collectivism, and conservatives critiqued them on both counts. Now, this is a gentleman who he wrote for National Review quite a bit. Uh, They objected to the way Nazis declassed and denied many privileges to non-Aryans, which forced upon society a new disruptive hierarchy. They disagreed with the novel ways Nazis imagined Jews to be less than people. They pointed out how Nazis developed a welfare state which suppressed individual freedom to live, think, and work. This was the opposite of conservatism, which sought to preserve traditional arrangements formed by providence over time through experience. So so, so this is like the difference between ideology and tradition. When ideology comes in, it is a one-stop shop, one-size-fits-all. Immediately now, everyone must conform to this new plan that's been that, that, that's been uh, concocted in the political laboratory, right? We we have found the secret to how society is supposed to function. We found the mathematical equation. We've discovered it. And now we're going to impose it on everyone. That, that's ideology. So that's why I say abstract. It's like conceived in the mind and then it's imposed. Whereas uh, tradition is from the bottom up. It's more of a, um, this is how people have lived together for years and bonds they've formed as they've shared their own griefs and sorrows and joys and victories. And they have, it's not a perfect world, but they have figured out ways in local regions to live without killing each other and to form bonds. Uh, and, and it's a society that you're born into and you have obligations to, and those are good obligations. That's, that, that's how, how tradition works. So it's two different ways to approach the social arrangements. And, and this is why conservatives critiqued Nazis and communists and other ideologues and classical liberals, by the way, National Review was still doing that in the 1950s. In the conser- uh, I should back up here. Um, uh, Lieden uh, said that national socialists always belonged to the left. And the idea that they were of the right was one of the most successful hoaxes in history. In The Conservative Mind, Russell Kirk echoed this point. If you haven't read that, by the way, Conservative Mind is one of the preeminent conservative books. Kirk wrote, the Nazi and fascist parties were destructive instruments made possible by the hysteria and loneliness of the masses who enthusiastically supported them. Though now and again, these ideologies might endeavor to disguise themselves by talk of family and tradition, this was no better than sham. Their nature and object was revolutionary. What he's saying there about loneliness, this is um, a common th- thought about Nazism, about communism uh, from conservatives. They, they've noticed that these totalitarian ideologies destroy, they erase, um, and, and classical liberalism is also part of this, by the way. The Weimar Republic would have been part of this. They, they undermine the voluntary associations and local communities. So public trust is... Uh, is broken. I think 2020 we saw a really big example of this, where people don't trust each other as much as they did before, and you're suspicious of your neighbor. He might spy on you. He might tell the government. Right? There's, there's, they're a, they're a threat. Don't go around them. They have a disease, and and of course technology facilitates some of this. But there's a loneliness that comes. If you're just on social media, that's your only connection. You're going to be lonely. If you don't have human connection, you're going to be lonely. And if you're lonely, what can fill that place or at least promise you that they're going to fulfill their, your needs and give you a sense of identity and purpose? Well, uh, a far off political party is going to appeal to you more than even the local surroundings that should be in place and working effectively, but they're not because the family's broken down, community's broken down, et cetera. So their object was revolutionary. Conservatism and Nazism were mortal enemies by nature. One way to show this clearly is to examine the way National Socialists viewed religion. Nazi leadership believed Christianity competed with their ideology. So Hitler mocked Christianity as a Jewish belief. He said, quote, I will not tolerate it if a parson meddles in earthly affairs. The organized lie must be broken so that the state is absolute Lord, unquote. And you wonder how some of the more pietistic leaning Christians today would deal with this. We can see an example in history of how they dealt with Hitler. It wasn't good. Heinrich Himmler said, We shall not rest until we have rooted out Christianity. As a result, the state agents seized most church property, routinely accused ministers of financial misconduct or sexual perversion, eliminated parachurch ministries and information outlets, and arrested thousands of clergy. When jurist Hermoth James von Moltke Was condemned to death in 1945 for consulting with clergy on the practical ethical demands of Christianity. He said, Christianity and we, National Socialists, have one thing in common and only one thing we claim the whole man. This aggressive opposition to Christianity resembled what took place during the French Revolution. Now, this is another good way to look at ideology, right? Ideology claims the whole man, it's totalitarian by nature. Uh, It's It's every part of you must be chained into this common pursuit of some kind. Tradition doesn't do that. Christian civilization, Christian tradition doesn't do that. Uh, It assumes that your life should be for the glory of God, but it doesn't uh, formulate that in, in a church or a state or really any institution that you must now, a human institution that you must give all your allegiance to. and um there's purpose and there's telos but it's not subsumed and organized by some human institution there's what we call providence that directs things over time in a in a more gradual fashion russell kirk applied edmund burke's critiques of the french revolution to 20th century tyrants who religiously prioritized the will of the modern state over people's natural interests in both communism jacobinism uh, I guess not communism, but proto-communism. I mean, Marx was, it was before Marx, but it was French revolutionary thought, and socialism, the state subordinating every social impulse. Unlike leftists who share their anti-Nazi enthusiasm with communists, Anglo-American conservatives saw their own disagreements represented more in the German state's religious opponents. Friedrich Augustus Voigt wrote, the people who did most against the Nazis were not the communists not even the socialists, but the active Christians and the conservatives, the Jesuits, the ministers, the junkers, the the colonels, and the aristocrats. And this is from uh, National Review 1956. So he's saying, look, it's not the communists who are the the major enemy here. He's like the Christians were the major enemy. Um, James Donahue recounts in a book called Hitler's Conservative Opponents in Bavaria the way that many Bavarian Christians believed the new Germany had departed from values and traditions of which Germany had once been so proud. And, and this book, uh, I believe, was written in 1961, so not not long after. I mean, the generation who fought World War II is still around. And Donahue writes that most of those who were actively opposed to Hitler in the years after 1933 were equally opposed to the old-fashioned 19th century liberalism, as well as Bolshevism. So these people weren't classical liberals. They weren't communists. They weren't fascists. What were they? Uh, they opposed National Socialism the way Edmund Burke opposed the French Revolution by appealing to Christianity traditional social hierarchy, and private property. They defended the liberty of the church because they believed their religion was true, not because they prized the freedom to worship in a neutral society. This is what today is being called Christian nationalism. Just so you know, the most ardent opposition to Hitler were people that today would be totally branded Christian nationalists. Uh, This is who conservatives said in the 1950s were the main opponents of Hitler. They would be branded Christian nationalists today. They weren't classical liberals. They weren't fascists. They weren't communists. They were Christians, and, and they wanted Christian civilization. This has been lost somewhat, and, and I'm afraid the way, <laughs> the way things are going in elite circles, it will never be regained as long as, well, I shouldn't say never. God God can do anything, and stranger things have happened. There is an undercurrent with young people who are interested in this. They want a return to Christian civilization, I would say, though, that there's a huge failure going on. And, and, and unfortunately, I think most of these people can't see that they're they're failing in this regard. Among those who are older, who should have more wisdom, some do, but a lot of them don't. And they're not encouraging this. They're, they're committed to a classical liberalism. And they don't see how it undermines their Christianity. In fact, sometimes they fuse it with the Constitution or their conception of it with Christianity. Um, it's really their conception of it because the Constitution, I... Are there maybe some classical liberal things that, I mean, it's not even, you could you could make a better case that the Declaration of Independence had some maybe classical liberal themes. Constitution, though, uh, it's a governing document that's more of, of, you know, here's how things function. Here's how we're going to organize uh, the way that government operates. So it's an operational document more than anything else. It's it's uh, and, and there is wisdom. There is wisdom behind it. Mostly, though, it's b- biblical references that were being discussed in the Constitutional Convention. Anyway, in modern America, these opponents of Hitler would be classified by the media as Christian nationalists, yet their instincts are similar to older generations of Anglo-American conservatives who rightly detected Nazism, the innovations of modernity, and rejected them. They also rejected progressivism and any ideology people sought to make the yardstick for all political decisions. Gerhard Niemeyer observed those conservatives who fought militantly, both Nazism and Communism, and have seen the destruction wrought by these totalitarian ideologies have acquired a certain primordial fear of all ideological thinking. But wisely, they recognized the political reality that national socialism had collapsed and was at most a historical reminiscence. New threats demanded their attention, which is why they spent little time rehashing their critiques to warn about an enemy already defeated. This is why conservatives don't haven't talked about Nazis as much as the left. They're not obsessed with them. They, they view that as that, that time came and went. In fact, even people today who say they're neo Nazis, they're not Nazis. They're not, you know, you'd, you'd have to live in the Nazi regime of 19, in the 1940s, 1930s, and 40s to be a Nazi. They, they might have some similar ideas and so forth, but th- these aren't, the, these people are not the major threat to uh, our civilization. Leftists fall, anyone who falls short of sharing their obsession to smoke out Nazis is somehow harboring pro Nazi pro-Nazi sentiments. Right. I might even get comments in this video, which is the funny part by people who think that I'm defending Nazis or I'm because uh, c- as a conservative, I don't critique it hard enough or I'm telling you not not to worry about it uh, because it's not a huge threat or anything that I'm the problem. That that could be. Um, and by the way, I should say there might be some of you who maybe maybe you do have a son or a I say a son because more likely young men, probably. But maybe you do know someone who is being attracted to some of these neo-Nazi type beliefs. And maybe this is something that you need to look into a little more. But I'm just saying overall, when you look at the big picture, not the threat, not not anything close to what the left makes out. Um, It does not matter how often former President Trump denounced neo-Nazis, white supremacists and Klansmen, the media still constantly subjected him to renewing this disavowal. The ritualistic purity tests are perhaps what led to the modern political right seared conscience on this whole issue. There's a good example of this from a few years ago at a large gun rights rally in Richmond. I lived in Virginia at the time, so this sparked in my mind. There was a conservative blogger who noticed the event did not seem to be about guns at all. Instead, the goal was disproving the leftist narrative that Nazis and Klansmen are the only ones who care about gun rights and instead painting then-Governor Ralph Northam as the true Nazi and Klansmen, which, granted, Northam made pretty easy because his yearbook had a picture of him, I guess, in a Klansman attire or a blackface. I'm not sure which. This, of course, is the same Ralph Northam who thought it was acceptable to do things like raise monuments and kill children after birth. Yet the message the crowd emphasized with their signs and slogans was how racist he supposedly was as if that was relevant to his attempted gun grab. So th- I saw this firsthand. I saw how people painted Northam as this horrible figure because he's, he's a Nazi. He's like Hitler. He's, and, and I thought this is what the left did though. Wait, not long ago, Wait, why are we doing this? Now, political activists on the right are starting to adopt the left's moral framing. Nate Hochman, or Hochman, I guess, an aide working for Ron DeSantis' campaign, was immediately fired from his position after retweeting an exaggerated political video that briefly featured an obscure symbol apparently used by Nazis. Yet, Christina Pushaw the campaign's rapid response director, a little, little higher up, defended congratulating a homosexual father who had twins through surrogacy the same month it's on the Ron DeSantis campaign this is back this is in july we're talking a little over a month ago last year a, a historian on the virginia board of historical resources had to resign from governor glenn youngkin's administration for simply supporting monuments to confederate soldiers yet again this was the same administration that hosted a series of pride month events The left's long cancel culture tradition now adopted by the right is starting to extend to groups like traditional Christians. And we just interviewed Lizzie Marbuck from Ohio Right to Life. And I showed you this, that just believing in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, she said, there's no hope for any of us outside of having faith in Jesus Christ alone that offended Republican Congressman Max Miller. And he called it one of the most bigoted tweets ever. And she loses her job. It's the same play that's being run. That there's uh, there's bigotry. On the right, and we can adopt all the sexual anarchy we want, and we will never be held accountable for it. And it's acceptable now, even if you're on the right politically to adopt that sexual anarchy to some extent. and you will not be called out for it. But the moment you and and I don't know what with with Hochman, you know, if he was aware of this symbol, I didn't, when I saw the symbol, I didn't even know it was Nazi. I don't even I don't even still know if it's Nazi. Maybe it's associated with Nazis, but you know it, it doesn't matter, it does not matter that you get fired right away. There is no room for error on this, right? Um, we, we could talk about other, you know, similar things. You're, you're there, there's there's blasphemy laws that the left has put in place that we abide by, but where there should be uh separation and regulation and acknowledgement of evil when it comes to transgender and homosexual and things, there isn't, we, we've lost that, and so. We are, I believe, operating now within the left's framework. Even the right is operating within the left's framework. These representative examples of the political right policing themselves are happening during a time when conservative industry leaders seem more concerned with normalizing homosexuality than responding to the left's constant attacks on white people. They conceive of America in ways only progressives used to. America is more the abstract ideas of freedom and equality than it is a tangible place filled with tangible people. As egalitarian sentiments increase, right-wingers follow in the footprints laid down by, for them by radicals. As a result, gatekeepers in politically right circles are conditioned into suspecting Nazi sympathies simply because someone values a sense of people in place. So we come for full circle now. The right is now saying the same thing Harry Truman said in the 50s. That guy likes people in place too much. He wants to make America great again, right? Uh, now, that Trump, Trump is kind of... Trump Trump has his, I guess, contradictions on this in a way. But Trump, one of the things the left had a problem with Trump about was his border policy and the fact that he looked at America not as an idea but as people. And this is uh, in a place, and and this is one of the things that now is being critiqued from the right. That there's that that if you have that sympathy for people in place, you know, be careful of that. I mean, that's that could lead to Nazism, or that might be Nazism. This became more clear to me recently as I watched conservative and evangelical Christian outlets try to eviscerate Stephen Wolf's book, The Case for Christian Nationalism. Though legitimate critiques exist, and um, and I do believe that. I, I, it's, I've read probably most of them, and most of them are cheap shots. Most of them aren't well-argued. They're lazy. Uh, I think Stephen told me there was one that I have yet to read that was actually a good critique. But I'm very open to critiques. In fact, one of the things that I thought when I was reading that book is seems really focused on New England. and And I even kind of nudged Stephen this way when I was with him at a, an event uh, a month or two ago, and just said, uh, or my guess it was in April, so it was more than that. But I guess you know what I said was that uh, you know what, what about you know the South? What about what was going on in Virginia? Because you know i'm I'm doing this Virginia first documentary right now. And there, Virginia really is the, the, the headwaters for America, the America that we have today. And, and there's differences between Virginia and new England. And, and I would say that the, the Puritan model actually turned into, if you look historically, it turned into Unitarianism, transcendentalism, and it went off the rails. And now is the current Northeast of today. I mean, there's, and the Bible belts in the South, you got to figure out why that is, what led to that. And so. Um, I I don't even know if I would agree with, you know, and I don't know where Stephen's even at with all of this, but uh, the New England centric approach that looks at um, everything kind of must serve the common good, or at least they have, let's just put it this way. They have a, a, they had a larger role the government played in society, in regulation, in conforming people. Um, I I have a Jeffersonian instinct. I don't care for that. So, so I, I could see. In other, words, I'm just saying that I could see critiques being made along those lines. That those haven't been the critiques, though. Um, Stephen said what many Christian thinkers before him, including Augustine and Calvin, believed that blood relations—and this is a quote—matter for your ethnicity because your kin have belonged to this people on this land. That was enough, guys. That was enough. I mean, this, these would be. This was obvious to Christians in previous generations. It did not matter that Wolf clarified he rejected modern racialist principle and was not making a white nationalist argument. He said that. But Paul Matsko in Reason Magazine, which is a libertarian magazine, wrote that Wolf has composed a segregationist political theology. Kevin DeYoung wrote in the review for the Gospel Coalition that Wolf's arguments bore resemblance to certain blood and soil nationalisms of the 19th and 20th centuries. Hmm, wonder what they could be. Virgil Walker wrote for G3 Ministries that Wolf's version of nationalism maintains consistency with the kind of German Volkism that paved the way for ethnic German nationalism. Hint, hint, Stephen's a Nazi, or at least he's on his way to becoming one. This, of course, was never the problem political conservatives, though, had with Nazism until very recently. In fact, some of their critiques were that national socialists did not value people in place enough. They violated sovereign borders, persecuted their own countrymen, and destroyed sacred traditions. They, they viewed the blood and soil slogan as merely a slogan to whatever extent they had affinity for their own. It was not the Nazi instinct to replace natural affections with a love for power and ideology. What modern political conservatives fail to see is how their willingness to cancel others for violating egalitarian principles shares more in common with the ideologues they claim to oppose than it does their conservative heritage. And I mean every word of that. The conservatives today who are critiquing using the rehashed leftist critiques from the fifties that leftists are using against them, but they're taking them and using them against their right. They're punching right using them. They are uh, they are making a grave mistake, and they they're they're hypocrites in a way. They don't see it maybe, but they're hypocrites. Authentic conservatives have a much stronger argument against national socialism, but it is not one they need to deploy, seeing as how busy they are actually. They actually are fighting real threats. Younger members of the right are starting to see the failures of the late stage post-war conservatism. The question is whether they will have the opportunity to conserve conservatism by restoring a Christian moral framework that values people in place while rejecting newly adopted ideology. So um, th- that's just working through that piece because we've been going over an hour. I'm not going to have time to talk about the modern application of God's law. That'll just take too much time. Maybe we'll get to it next week. But um yeah, this is where we are. This is the world that we live in. If there's any questions, by the way, or comments, get them in now so I can focus on them before we end the podcast. This is probably going to be the Labor Day podcast. So, uh, so get those in. Um, I'm looking at the comments right now. A number of you have, uh, huh. Truddle says that, uh, Eric von, uh, Kuhnelt Leighton came up twice now for him in this week. That's interesting. I wonder where he, he came up for I mean, it's the first time I was reading him, I think, was was this previous week looking in the archives of National Review. And I'm like, who is this guy? Um, Trottel also says, he says, I, I've had a similar re- realization before. The left doesn't actually care that the Nazis were murderous. They just disliked the Nazis, were loud, energetic, and appealed to a populist sentiment. Yeah, well, I, I think that they... Yeah, the, the murders, that's the thing with any totalitarianism. That's why Charles Hayward thinks we're going to get violence. I, I don't know if people saw that, but a few days ago, there was a big kerfuffle on Twitter between Josh Bice of G3 Ministries and Charles Hayward. It, In my opinion, it was pretty silly because I think Josh Bice uh, was, he was trying to take quotes from Charles Hayward. And then one of the things he wanted to attribute to him was that, well, Charles Hayward, who, who for those who don't know, Charles Hayward is a, uh, well, I don't even know to describe him completely? He, he reviews books. I guess you could say he's a bit of a political philosopher, but he has a philosophy called foundationalism. And uh, I'm I'm planning on trying to get him on the program to maybe talk about some of this. But anyway, uh, one of the things that Josh Bice was trying to go after was that he approves of violence somehow. And and some of the things he said were just tongue in cheek; they were jokes. He wasn't really, it, it was being sarcastic. It was obvious. It was kind of like when the left looks at tr- some of Trump's comments that are clearly him joking, and they they try to write a whole article about how it's he's promoting violence. And um, Charles Hayward, though, does actually think, because I've I heard an interview with him where he talked about this, that there will be violence inevitably in the United States, more so than we're seeing now, because totalitarianism always has violence. There, the people who do not conform to the state that approved uh, rigid standards that conform to this very narrow ideology are they're they're killed they're persecuted that that's just what happens they're uh, marginalized they're put in concentration camps and things like that uh, that that's a real fear that could come up at some point um <laughs> someone's cosmic treason said uh stephen wolf said that white evangelicals as a group are the lone bulwark against moral insanity in america and that was critiqued by james white worth listening to yes i have heard it um, I I would respectfully disagree with Dr. White on his understanding of that or or what that means. I I thought that was a poor critique and uh, I guess that's out there publicly now, but you know, that's just my disagreement and I think good men can disagree with each other on things. Um, I did some episodes on that at the time and I, and I think what happened there was Stephen Wolf and this really is off topic to be honest with you. Um, But, but, but I guess it's on, you could relate it in the sense that that's just another quote that you can pull from Stephen Wolf that, people tried to take and then paint it as some kind of a, you know, proto fascistic thing. And, and really he's saying that there's these, he was talking about political categories and people then imposed upon him, these theological categories that he didn't mean. So taking, you know, eternal categories, imposing them on this, these temporal political categories and, you know, could Steven have said that differently? Could he have? Yeah, I suppose so. And he probably, you know, now I, I think he probably would say that, yeah, Maybe I could have said it better, but as soon as you're being called out in those ridiculous ways, you don't, there's no reason to back down or apologize because he didn't do anything technically wrong. Um, He's looking at voting patterns (laughs) and saying, yeah, it sure seems like white evangelicals tend to vote for conservatives more. Guess what? According to some polling agencies, black evangelicals have a tendency, not all of them, but the vast majority tend to vote for pro-abortion candidates, pro-homosexual candidates, Democrats, Why is that? They have uh, similar beliefs on some things and and they're even categorized as evangelical in some of the polling data. Most of the time they're not. uh, But but I I did see one recently where it actually separated white evangelicals and black evangelicals and their voting patterns were very different. So 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 it's looking at general trends and politicians have to take those things into account. But but to then frame that as well, he's denying that there's unity at the communion table or that we're all one in Christ or that, uh, you know, my racial minorities don't matter or something like that is it, completely ridiculous. Not the point he was making at all. So anyway, um, yeah, Kiana Shaw says, Stephen was right. It's factually correct. And I agree it is. It's just a fact. Uh, I, I don't care really what people show me or, uh, uh think of me for that, but I don't know what else to say. I mean, it, 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 this is like the level that we're the, the level at which we're dealing with these things. It's sad to me because we're, we're talking about surface level things and we could be talking about some root issues, but I thought it was worth pointing out to you. And I thought, hopefully this was educational for understanding when you see that critique coming from so-called conservatives, that is not a conservative critique. Conservatives love people in place. We want to preserve things and we want changes to be gradual. We want to preserve identity and social trust. And we want people who have lived here and, and grown up in certain areas and develop trust with each other and forged uh, bonds to be able to maintain those without them being totally disrupted, and to to say that people who are concerned about that kind of thing because maybe they don't want mass immigration or something are well, that's kind of I don't know, I'm a little little Hitler there, a little bit of a fascist there, or you know, they're they're somehow racially whatever. It's just uh, it, it's not that's a leftist critique. That's some that's coming from a leftist at least in on that issue. Maybe there's other issues they're not leftist on, but they're, they're they're being a leftist on that issue. And I think it's because a lot of the people on our side uh, who were against social justice, at least the previous iteration of it, they had adopted even earlier forms of it and, and forms that were consistent with classical liberalism. They just didn't want full-blown Marxism. So we're going to have to spend probably more time talking about classical liberalism. I'm actually listening to a, um, an audio book right now. Uh, which is fascinating. Uh just a recommendation for, for everyone out there. I don't usually give book re- recommendations. I'm halfway done with this though. Why liberalism failed by Patrick Deneen. It's a fascinating read. Um, another one is The Demon in Democracy. Those are those are two books that I would just say, uh, I don't know if I agree with everything in them, but they they certainly will give you a different perspective and show you how, yeah, okay, that that's what I'm seeing. That's why when I look at even, you know, people on the blaze in the Daily Wire sometimes, they say things that I, I think. That seems a little leftist, but but I know they're not leftists. Well, there there might be an attachment among some of those figures to a classical liberalism that uh, does value it basically um, thinks that you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. It values the decision making uh, ability that people have and the consent. That's what we saw with Richard Dawkins at the beginning of this podcast and places that as preeminent that's the decision maker um it's uh, denine makes the argument that that actually valuing individual individualism like this that kind of individualism i should say uh leads to totalitarianism that there's a symbiotic relationship there which is an interesting perspective and an interesting argument that i don't have time to get into but um but the, the idea that uh you know the diversity is our strength that we're just one big melting pot that uh, You know, America is just an idea um, that you can do whatever you want with your body as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. I mean, these are all kinds of classical liberal slogans that we've all been immersed in from a young age. And they undermine Christianity, actually. They undermine our civilization. And yeah, maybe they're not woke completely, but that was the road that, that was the stepping stone you needed to get to woke. There you go. All right. We've been going about an hour and 15 minutes, so I need to stop. But uh, hey, God bless. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and uh, wonderful Lord's Day. More coming by now. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card.